balancing the fear you know, with complacency, it's taught me that it's okay to feel fear as long as I'm, you know, I just can't be complacent. I can't let that fear paralyze me. I just think about going through the Kumbu ice fall. You can be scared and brave at the same time. So I've learned that fear is just a normal human emotion. That's, it is, it doesn't have to prevent you from moving forward. Have you ever heard of the Adventure Grand Slam? To achieve it, you have to have climbed the highest peak on each continent and skied to both the North and South Poles. Our guest today has done that and much, much more in the world of climbing on Wall Street as an author, an inspirational speaker, and a teacher at West Point and elsewhere. Her success in extreme environments is noteworthy given that she has had three heart surgeries and suffers from an ailment that causes the arteries that feed her fingers and toes to collapse in cold weather, leaving her at extreme risk for frostbite. Who would do all of this and more? Well, our guest today is Allison Levine. And we've always wanted to interview a climber, but we had no idea what we were getting into with this amazing woman. Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Culligan Water. With Culligan's drinking water systems, you can get the ultra-filtered water you need to fuel your high-performance lifestyle right on tap. Learn more at Culligan.com. We caught up with Allison at home in Colorado. So, Allison, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. It's really great to have you with us today. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here with you all. I'm really looking forward to some of the things that we're going to talk about. But before we get into the what you're doing today, we like to start with how did you get started? So how did you get into rock climbing and what drew you to the more technical side of the sport? So I am actually not a rock climber. I've never been, a, I don't know, super enthusiastic about the sport for whatever reason, but I'm on the mountaineering side. I guess to those of us who are not, not like steeped in that, it's like there is a difference, obviously. Yeah, it's a completely different <laughs> yeah. sport altogether. Well, how did you get into mountaineering then? So I got into mountaineering. It's actually sort of a funny story. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and as a kid, I was always very intrigued by the stories of the early Arctic and Antarctic explorers and the early mountaineers. So I would read these books and I would watch these documentary films, I think because it felt like an escape from the extremely oppressive summer heat. <laughs> so I loved the stories about the really cold places. So I would read the books and I would watch the documentary films. And I never really envisioned myself going to those places because I had some health challenges as a kid. I was born with a hole in my heart that got bigger as I got older. And so I never thought I would do any big, you know, physical challenges. But long story short, I had my first heart surgery when I turned 17. That one did not go so well, but I had my second one when I turned 30. And that one did go well. And so about 18 months after my second heart surgery, this light bulb went on in my head and I thought, okay, hang on. If I want to know what it's like to be these guys going to these remote mountain ranges, then I should go to the remote mountain ranges instead of just watching documentaries about other people going there. If I want to know what it's like to be these explorers like Reinhold Messner and drag a 150 pound sled across 600 miles of Antarctic ice, then I should go to Antarctica and ski to the South Pole instead of watching films about this stuff. And if these other guys can do this stuff, you know, why can't I do it too? So I climbed my first mountain when I was 32 years old. So 57 now and, and still wow. going. So, uh, you know, speaking of wild mountain ranges, I mean, you've reached the summit of Mount Everest several times. Uh, you climb the seven summits. 
I was going to ask you what originally motivated you, but you kind of just told us, but, but did you know what you were getting into when you had that ambition? No, I, <laughs> I really had no idea what I was getting into. I just started, you know, climbing mountains when I could on breaks from grad school. So I climbed my first mountain right before I started business school at Duke. And then I was hooked from the first one, the first expedition that I went on. And at Duke, we we're on six-week terms. So every six weeks, you have a week off in between terms. So if you add the weekends on, you know, you could get nine days, you know, a nine-day vacation. And I didn't have any money because I was living off of student loans, but I figured if I could just use frequent flyer miles and put everything I needed in a backpack, I could travel on every break in between my terms and try to climb a different mountain. And so I would go to a different mountain on every break and I would meet people on those mountains and I would stay in touch with them. And so then I would ask them, you know, what are you doing next? What are you doing next? And I would just stay in touch with people and meet them for future climbs. And then things just sort of snowballed from there. So that's how I got started. And um, the first mountain I went to, I want to just talk about this for a second, because it's really an important one in terms of the tools that it gave me for future climbs. So the first mountain I ever went to was Mount Kilimanjaro. And I'm sure plenty of people watching or listening have done that one. It's not a technical climb and you don't have to have, yeah, any special training or really any special equipment, just some warm clothes. I didn't even own a backpack. I didn't own warm clothes coming from Arizona. So I just borrowed, I had to borrow fleece jackets, Gore-Tex jackets. I, I did buy my own boots from REI. So I did have my own hiking boots, but everything else was borrowed. And I used my frequent flyer miles. I went to Kilimanjaro just by myself. I found a guide at the base of the mountain. I think he was, it was $300 at the time. This is back in 1998. And he grabbed a couple of porters and I did the Kilimanjaro climb. But the reason that it was important is because, you know, not because it was a, a super high mountain or a technical mountain, because it isn't. But that was the first time I experienced altitude where I really felt uncomfortable. And I remember waking up on, summit day and thinking, I need, you know, today's summit day, but I feel terrible. I felt terrible from the time I woke up. I got out of my tent. I took a couple of steps. I was very out of breath, which is normal at altitude, right? Because Kilimanjaro is over 19,000 feet. And I thought, oh, I'm not going to make it. I feel too uncomfortable. I'm not going to make it. But before I, I'm going to turn around and go down. But before I turn around, I'm just going to take a couple of steps. And so I took a couple of steps and thought, okay, I know I'm not going to make it. This feels way too uncomfortable. I'm having trouble breathing. I feel like I'm going to puke. I have a banging headache. I'm going to turn around. But before I turn around, I'm just going to take a couple more steps. And I would take a couple more. And then I would take a couple more. Okay, I know I'm not going to make it. I know I'm going to turn around, but I just want to see what it looks like from over there. And I would take a couple more steps. And before I knew it, I was at the summit of the mountain. And it's really where I learned that lesson that you can keep going when you're incredibly uncomfortable. And so on any mountain after that, whenever I felt uncomfortable, I just thought to myself, okay, wait, I felt like this before and I kept going then so I can keep going now. You just need that one time to really push through incredible discomfort. And you know, if you've done it once, you can do it again and again and again. So I have to ask, did you do the five-day route or the eight-day route? I did the five-day route. Okay, I did the eight-day route. But it's. It, I'd love to hear how it compared 
because you're right, it wasn't technical. But then you went, you did Everest and you were part of the first women's Everest expedition not that long after. And that's a completely different experience, right? Six continents before before you did Everest. First American women's Everest expedition. So I climbed the highest peak on six continents and had done a lot of other climbing in between and South America. So it wasn't like I just jumped from, you know, Kilimanjaro to Everest. There was a lot that happened in between. So what was it like on Everest? Because I always, I mean, that's, that's, you get into really cold weather, really treacherous footing, really technical climbing. It's way different than Kilimanjaro. Yeah, it is so different. I mean, other than altitude, I mean, where you feel sick at altitude, Kilimanjaro doesn't really present very many, you know, risks. Where Everest, there's risks every day, right? Because you're talking a summit of 29,000 feet instead of 19,000 feet, you know, 19 and change, you have 29 and change. There's avalanche danger, there's risk of falling into a crevasse, there's risk of hypothermia and frostbite, cerebral edema, pulmonary edema, there's risk, you know, inherent risk all the time on that mountain. As long as you're climbing on that mountain, there's risk everywhere around you. So you have to be aware of that. And you just have to really embrace this mindset about not being complacent, right? So I always tell people, fear is okay. It's okay to feel fear as long as it doesn't paralyze you. But complacency is really what puts you at risk. Especially there's one part of Everest called the Kumbu Icefall, which is one of the most dangerous parts of the mountain. And it's basically 2,000 vertical feet of these big, huge moving ice chunks that are the size of small buildings. And what happens is the sun comes up, everything starts to melt. So these big, huge ice chunks start to shift around. So you're in constant danger of being crushed. And then it's made more complicated by the fact that there are these big, huge open crevasses everywhere where you could indeed fall hundreds of feet to your death. So it's a very scary part of the mountain, but you just have to embrace this mindset that you can be scared and brave at the same time. You can't. You can be scared and brave at the same time. And you're most at risk in that icefall when you're standing around, right? When you're just, you're a sitting duck in that icefall. You want to get through that thing as quickly and as efficiently as you can. So you've climbed some other tough routes like Iger's North Face and and the like. Um, How do you know, you know, there are plateaus, I would imagine, like any sport, endeavor, whatever, where, you know, you you have to get better, you have to learn. How do you know when you're ready for the next step? That's a great question. A lot of it has to do with just being mentally ready and understanding that the route might not be as straightforward as previous routes that you've been on. You might have to do some backtracking. You might have to do some route finding if it's not very straightforward. But you're always ready to try the next mountain because if things aren't going well for you, you can always turn around. There's no shame in turning back from the summit. I tell people all the time, Coming back alive is your number one goal. <laughs> Good point. The goal of a mountain climb is not to get to the top of a mountain. The goal of every single climb, come back alive. Come back with all your fingers and toes. Come back having learned a lot along the way. Coming back having made some new friends. These are all the goals that come before getting to the top of the mountain. And so you can always push yourself and try something. And if you feel like you're not climbing in a way that is safe for you, then you simply turn around, go back, 
practice your skills and go back and try it again another time. I'm just really reminded by what you're saying of the film um, Free Solo, where Jimmy Chin was so worried that he was inadvertently putting pressure on when Alex Honnold, the subject of the film, decides on his own to turn around is when Jimmy realized that Alex was in his own world and he was going to manage that risk himself. He's amazing. Well, they're both amazing. Jimmy Chin and Alex Honnold are both people I greatly admire. I don't quite understand Alex Honnold. But <laughs> Who does? Don't all have, I think a lot of people feel the way I think yeah. about him. Much respect and admiration, but, you know, I mean, his... I feel like his brain just works differently than <laughs> many of the rest of ours. But when you're making that next step, you know, Sandy mentioned different plateaus. How do you prepare for that next pushing? You know, your your limits are going, expanding. How do you prepare for that? You know, extra training, mental? What you have to realize when you're climbing a, a big mountain is the closer you get to your goal, the more uncomfortable you're going to feel because you're gaining elevation. And the higher you go on the mountain, the tougher the altitude is to contend with. And so that's part of what you have to accept is that you're going to be more and more uncomfortable as you get closer to your goal. But you also realize that this is temporary. You're only on the mountain for a finite amount of time. And when you come back down, you know that you're going to feel a lot better and you're going to feel a lot more comfortable and you can kind of celebrate your success or analyze what went wrong if you didn't find the success that you were after, but you do have to accept that the closer you get to your goal, the more uncomfortable you're going to be. You know, we do a lot of training before we fly. So it's like fly like train like you fly, right? That's the mantra that we use. So it's train, train, train. So that when you finally go fly and you're in the, the you know, the environment, it feels very comfortable. Do you have a similar, a similar thing that you have a similar way you approach it? Cause you go, as you point out, you go higher and higher and higher, you get more uncomfortable, but is there a certain amount of training that's involved in this too? Yeah, I mean, the only way to really train, my opinion, the only way to really train for a big mountain is to get out to the mountains. So no amount of running, cycling, swimming is going to help you prepare to climb a big peak. It's going to help your overall physical health, your cardiovascular system, but you have to get out to the mountains and simulate what you're going to be doing. So for me, when I was first, when I was training in 2002 for the first American women's Everest expedition, I was living in Northern California. And so I would drive out to a peak called Mount Shasta, which is south of the Oregon border, about five or six hours from where I lived in San Francisco. And I would train on Mount Shasta on the weekends. And I would start from the parking lot at Mount Shasta. I'd start at about 11 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock or midnight. I'd put on a heavy pack. I'd climb from the parking lot to the summit of Shasta, which is just over 14,000 feet, and then back down. And I would do it in one push without sleeping because in addition to wanting to condition my body, you know, climbing up a steep snow slope, wearing my crampons with my ice axe, with a heavy pack, at as much altitude as you can get in the lower 48. I also wanted to practice sleep deprivation because a lot of times a summit bid is going to take 18, 20, maybe 24 or more hours and you don't get to sleep. So I wanted to be prepared for that. I wanted to push my body, not only physically, but psychologically, emotionally. I wanted to know what it felt like to climb at altitude when I was extremely sleep deprived. And it's funny, I have a book called On the Edge. And in my book, there's one chapter about my training. And I talk about 
training with the sleep deprivation. And it's probably the only chapter I get a lot of pushback on because is going without sleep a bunch of times good for you? No, it's terrible for you. But I didn't write a book about how to live to be 100. No, I (laughs) wrote a book about how to get through the toughest of time when you absolutely have to. So for me, it was simulating what is a summit bid on Everest going to look like if it's going to be 18, 20 or 24 more hours. I want to know what that feels like as closely as possible. I mean, I don't know. I couldn't simulate what it feels like to do it at 29,000 feet. So doing it at 14,000 feet was the closest I could get. And again, in the lower 48, that's as much altitude as you're going to get. So I practiced on, I trained on Mount Shasta and I trained in a state of sleep deprivation. Yeah. So, I mean, Edith Hamilton said, you know, the fullness of life is in the hazards of life. So, you know, if you go without a little sleep for a while and it's not so good for you, at least you got a full life, right? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because Back then, when I was training in 2002, when we talked about being healthy, people talked about eating right and exercising. And now, of course, we know that sleep is the third component of being really healthy. So unless you have to go without sleep, do not do not do this at home. <laughs> I, I'm not you endorsing this. Set, I mean, you know, seven hours at least if you can, because that's going to help your longevity. It helps your, you know, helps you perform better on a day-to-day basis if you get enough sleep. Yeah, I went without sleep so much in my career that I'm at a point in my life right now where I sleep and I don't, you know, I'm just not interested in, in cutting that short. So I, I would imagine, I, you know, I don't know if there's any mountain out there that you would say, nah, I'm not going to do that one or any particular route or climb. But I'm curious, how do you assess risk in terms of deciding something is sort of outside your ability? Or I just don't, I just don't feel like I want to do that one. Have you ever been in that situation where you've had to kind of go, I'm not going to do that? I haven't ever turned back because I felt the situation was too dangerous in terms of skill level. I've turned back on mountains because of weather uh, and other, you know, avalanche danger and things like that. But I don't feel like I need to put my life at risk again. I mean, I've done that a few times already. I don't feel like I need to put my life at risk again to feel like I'm challenging or to feel like I need to set some kind of record or something. I just, my views on some of these climbs have changed quite a bit over the past five years because I've seen so many incredibly skilled, talented, experienced climbers perish in the mountains. And when you think about how heartbreaking that is for their loved ones and their family, and is it really worth it? And I used to be very much of a, go big or go home person. And I'm really on a mission now to change that from go big or go home to go big and go home. The most important thing at the end of the day is to come home to the people that you care about and the people that care about you. And achieving really big things is meaningless if you don't live (laughs) to tell the stories and learn the lessons and share share the lessons and share the learnings and share the celebratory moments. And I think we should all have big dreams and we should all have big goals, but do not lose perspective on what is most important at the end of the day. And that's people, no question. Do you think that came with time and experience to get to that sort of viewpoint though? Because when, you know, when you start out fresh, you're like, Goal, got to achieve no matter what. This is the yeah, goal. And yeah, and you know, also when you have a few 
and your misses, you almost feel a little bit invincible, right? Oh, I've been in, in sketchy situations before and I came back from it unscathed or maybe not unscathed, but came back from it alive with all my fingers and toes. So I think, you know, I could do that again. And you realize that you can only cheat death so many times. And at the end of the day, I want to come home to the people that I love, to my dog. You know, I want to continue to be a contributing member to society. And if if I cut all that short because I had to stand on top of a pile of rock and ice, to me, it doesn't make sense because that's what a big mountain is. A big mountain is a pile of rock and ice. That's all it is. So I just you know, keep this in perspective that I love the sport. I love going out there. I love pushing myself. I love seeing how far out of my comfort zone I can get. I love improving my skills by trying things that are harder and harder and harder. But the most important thing to me that I'm always thinking about that's at the forefront of my mind is coming back alive. You know, you mentioned sketchy situations. Would you care to share a scary situation on a climb when you felt you were at risk? Yeah, I mean, we had on on Everest, our last trip through the Kumbu Icefall, there was a big ice avalanche where the icefall collapsed. And it's, you know, the icefall collapse started this ice avalanche and it stopped maybe about five feet from us. So that was really scary. I had another incident on a mountain. It's not a super high mountain, 16 and change, but it's a limestone. A lot, a lot of that is a partially a rock climb, which I don't do too much. I'd like I said, I don't love that sport, but it requires some of it on uh, Karsten's Pyramid. So on that one, I ended up with the, the bulb on my headlamp burning out. I had spare batteries, but I didn't have a spare bulb and I had to come down that in the dark and it was super sketchy. So there've been a few, you know, a few things where I've gotten back and thought, wow, I'm lucky I made it back from that because I was also alone on that mountain as well. But when I got back from Everest in 2010, after making it to the summit, I had people say, wow, you, you know, you climbed Everest. What are you going to do to top that? And I'm thinking, I don't, I don't have to top that. Climb K2 solo in winter. And I'm like, you should. You go climb K2 solo in winter. <laughs> do anything. I'm happy. And you bonbons for a little while. Uh, uh, speaking of solo, uh, you know, you don't, you don't do this your, by yourself. You don't go to the top of Everest alone, I would think. So climbing, I would think, causes you to have to put a lot of trust and faith in not only your equipment, but, you know, a fellow climber or a guide or something like that. Talk to us about that relationship of somebody you may have never met before who, who you're going and doing these very dangerous climbs with. I mean, most people do not climb these mountains solo. There's incredibly accomplished climbers like Reinhold Messner, who's probably the most, most accomplished modern day explorer who climbed Everest solo and without oxygen. He is an anomaly. Most people are there with support on the mountain. But you even on the on the south side of Everest, on the Nepal side, you have a 10-day trek in just to get to base camp. So you have quite a bit of time to really get to know the people on your team, which I think is a benefit. You can also climb Everest from the north side, approaching from the Tibet side where you drive to base camp. But that's one of the reasons I like approaching from the south, because I like that time of trekking through the villages and spending time with the locals and getting to know the people on your team and the Sherpas and the porters and the cook staff and everybody else that's supporting you. Yeah, it's beautiful too, actually. So what has been your proudest climbing accomplishment so far? And what's still on your bucket list? 
I would say my proudest climbing accomplishment is probably Mount Stanley, which is in the Ruanzori Mountains, which are, that's a mountain range in Western Uganda. It borders Uganda and the Democratic Republic of Congo. And Mount, it's the highest peak in Uganda. And it's just over 16,000 feet. So not exceptionally high. But the reason that it's my favorite one and the one I'm most proud of is because that was a climb where where I and the people that I was with had an opportunity to train the very first female porters and trekking guides in that area. So prior to our climb, women were not working as mountain guides and porters and high altitude cooks in these mountains because they were not allowed to climb these mountains. It was taboo in their culture. Among the local people, they believed that women were not allowed to go to the mountains. And so I heard this when I got there and I started asking them, why can't local women go to the mountains? And they said, it is taboo in our culture. We have always been told, you know, I said, well, who, who told you this? <laughs> and they said, the our guys. parents, our grandparents, <laughs> our great grandparents, we have always been told women cannot go to the mountains. And I said, okay, what's the reason? And nobody knew. <laughs> Nobody knew. They just kept saying, the well, culture. because we've yeah, always been yeah, told this. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought, well, maybe it's time for this little tradition to change. And <laughs> so we had a meeting with the head of the park service, the head of the guiding service, and the head of the local village, and explained to them, if you let your local women climb these mountains, go up into the mountains, and work as porters and trekking guides, your entire community will benefit because there'll be more money flowing into this region, right? You'll have more capital. You can afford things like school fees for your children, access to healthcare. You can afford things that you cannot currently afford. And the men were very forward thinking and they, they understood the logic behind it. And they said, well, that sounds good in theory, but local women, they cannot climb these mountains because they're just too weak. <gasps> so I was like, whoa, what did you <laughs> say? <laughs> so um, anyway, like, hi, here it's challenge. And so we ended up taking the first local women up into the mountains. We trained them to work as porters and trekking guides. It was their first opportunity to ever earn a sustainable living wage because prior to that, women in this area were considered property of men. They had no rights. They had no way to earn money other than prostitution. And so now we gave them a way that they could earn money and support their families and send their children to school. So that's the climb I'm most proud of because sometimes when you climb a mountain, you might, yeah, you might come back and think, well, that was great. I challenged myself. I met some great people. But what kind of impact does that really have? on anyone other than those of us who experienced it. And so for me, I'm proud of this experience because it showed that climbing a mountain actually does have impact and it impacted the entire community in such a positive way and really changed the lives of so many people there. So I go back every few years to train more and more women in these jobs. Oh, that's so awesome. That is yeah, an really awesome story. Water is the ultimate health drink, and it's not just about water that's good enough. You deserve water you love. With Pelican's filtration systems, you'll get the superior quality and pure-tasting, ultra-refreshing hydration you can count on to power your performance. Their smart reverse osmosis systems take it to the next level, helping you set hydration goals, 
track how much you're drinking and even see what contaminants are reduced in your water so you know you're always getting the exceptional water you need to truly feel good inside and out. Ready to face the day and whatever challenges it brings. Learn more at Culligan.com. So as a woman and, and what was certainly previously a male-dominated sport, obviously there are many, many more women and many, many more sports these days. But did you have to deal with a lot of skepticism about your ambition to climb some of these peaks back when you first started out? And how has that translated forward into sort of today? I started climbing in 1998. Back then, there were not very many women in the sport. And often I, I was the only woman on the mountain at any given time. I would not see any other women on the mountains on these trails that I was on in the mountains. So that's why in 2002, I was so excited to be asked to serve as the team captain for the first American women's Everest expedition because there were five of us and five of us didn't really have much in common other than the fact that we had this passion for the mountains. And so it was an opportunity to really just show the world what a team of women can do when they get together you know, lock arms and work toward a goal. And we also just wanted to inspire other women to get out of their comfort zones, to try new things. And it doesn't matter if it's a male-dominated field, you can get out there and pave your own way. So how has how has climbing shaped you mentally then? You know, all these challenges you talked about, the take a step, then take a few more steps. So how has that shaped, you know, maybe how you think and how you approach other parts of your life? It's really giving me some good perspective in so many other aspects of my life. So I mentioned before the balancing the fear with complacency. It's taught me that it's okay to feel fear as long as I'm, you know, I just can't be complacent. I can't let that fear paralyze me. And I just think about going through the Kumbu Icefall. You can be scared and brave at the same time. So I've learned that fear is just a normal human emotion. It is. It doesn't have to prevent you from moving forward. And I've learned to use fear. The mountains have taught me to use fear to my advantage. I use fear to keep me alert and aware of everything going on around me. So that's one area where the mountains have helped me. But another area that has really helped me is thinking about the way that you climb Mount Everest, because you actually do not just climb up the mountain, base camp, camp one, camp two, camp three. You don't just move up the mountain that way. You start at base camp. After 10 days of hiking, you reach base camp and then you spend a few days there to get used to the altitude. Then you move up to camp one. After you spend the night up at camp one, you come back down to base camp again and spend more time at base camp. Then you climb to camp one again, and then you climb to camp two. Spend the night up at camp two. You're about 21,500 feet. And the next day, after you spend the night up there, you come back down to base camp again. Spend more time at base camp. Climb to camp one again. Climb to camp two again. Climb to camp three. Camp three on Everest is almost 24,000 feet above sea level. And then the next day, you come all the way back down to base camp again. And the reason you have to keep coming back down to base camp is because you have to let your body get used to the altitude very slowly. It's this process called acclimatization. And if someone were to magically drop you off on the summit of Mount Everest, if you could be dropped up there by a plane or a helicopter, you'd be dead in a matter of minutes from the altitude. So you have to move up the mountain really slowly 
just to get your body used to the altitude. But the catch is that anytime you're above about 18,000 feet, which is any camp above base camp, anytime you're above 18,000 feet, your body is starting to deteriorate and your muscles are getting weaker. So it's this crazy catch 22 of you want to spend time up high to get used to the altitude, but you have to keep coming back down low so you can eat, sleep, hydrate, and then regain some strength. So to make progress on Mount Everest, you don't just go this way. You have to go this way and then back down and then higher and back down. And I find that life is like that and in business is like that. Sometimes progress doesn't happen in the direction that you think it's going to happen, but it doesn't mean you're not making progress. Just because you're moving backwards or what feels like the wrong direction to you doesn't mean you are not making progress. You are giving yourself an opportunity to regain strength so you're better out of the gates the next time around. So sometimes progress doesn't look like progress. Sometimes progress doesn't feel like progress, but you are still making progress. And so that thinking about that and the way you climb Everest the ups and the downs and the ups and the downs applies to so, so many different aspects of my life. So were you at Goldman early in your career or later after you started climbing? I was at Goldman after I started climbing. Well, kind of during. So I started climbing right before I started business school in 1998 and then kept climbing through business school on every break. And then I had $70,000 of student loans and ended up getting an offer. Even though I was, I had gone to the University of Arizona as an undergraduate, I was a liberal arts major. I had no background in finance or accounting, but ended up getting offers from a bunch of different investment banks, one of which was Goldman Sachs. And I thought, I, I don't have any background in this. I don't even think I like this, but I wanted to push myself. I wanted to stretch myself. I wanted a job that made me uncomfortable. And Goldman Sachs sounded like, like that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny because I really loved the firm and I loved the people there. I loved it because everybody was a clutch player. Sandy, like our mutual friend, Dan Schefter, right? That's where I met Dan Schefter. Dan Schefter is the kind of person who's incredibly intelligent, but also the guy's going to come through. When he says he's going to do something, he gets it done. He's a person that you can count on. And Goldman has people like that. Goldman has people that come through, they follow through on their commitments, they over-deliver. And that was very attractive to me, is working with people that I knew I could count on. Because those are the people I want to be climbing a mountain with. I want to be able to count on people. So I was at Goldman only for three years, I ended up loving the firm. I didn't love the job and I wasn't very good at it, but I loved the people. But when I was in the training program at Goldman, I got invited to join this expedition in Antarctica. And I thought, oh, I can't. I'm in the training program. I'm brand new to this. Well, I asked the managing director that was in charge of the training program. His name's Peter Grieve, Naval Academy guy. And he was, I thought, I know the answer is probably no, but is there any way I could take a leave of absence from the training program? He said, absolutely. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I said, if I promise if I pass my series seven and my series 63 and I do all this extra stuff. And he said, don't stress about that stuff. Go on the climb. If you are behind in anything, when you get back, we will help you get up to speed with your fellow new associates. That meant so much to me. And so then I thought, okay, that was my silver bullet. I used it during the training program. 
Well, when I was a new associate in the job, I got invited to serve as the team captain for the first American Women's Everest Expedition. Two months, I thought, I can't quit this job. I need the income. I have so much student loan debt. I'm living in San Francisco at the time, which was a very expensive city. I had credit card debt coming out of business school. And I thought there's no way, but I thought, okay, wait, this also is a once in a lifetime opportunity. If I don't ask, then I'm, I'm definitely not going to be the team captain of the first American Women's Everest Expedition. I'm going to ask the worst thing they can do is say no. And then I'll burn that bridge when I get there. Yeah, that's right. I like it. So I was, I was going to ask you whether there was anything from your climbing experience that spilled over into the business world, but I think you already just answered that question. <laughs> I asked the, the managing director in charge of the Goldman office in San Francisco, and they granted me a two-month unpaid leave of absence from the job and, and allowed me to take the position as the first American Women's Everest Expedition team captain and then was right back at my desk, you know, as soon as the expedition was over. Wow. And I'll tell you that, our mutual friend, Dan Schefter, and some other friends from Goldman helped me train. Those guys came to Mount Shasta with me on the weekends. They said, what can we do to support you? What can we do to help you? They didn't say, oh, you get two months off of work. How come we don't get two months off? You know, they could have looked at it that way. Why is she getting this special treatment? But they looked at it and said, she's doing something that she's really passionate about and we want to get behind her. And they helped me train on Shasta on the weekends. And it meant so much to me. Wow, that's a great story. You know, so for other people who share your passion and they're interested in getting into climbing, what advice would you give them for developing their skills or, you know, and understanding the risks and not just the physical and the mental, but the, you know, the risk awareness and the situational awareness you need to, to manage the environment? So first of all, starting on smaller mountains that don't have a lot of risk. So for example, Mount Whitney is the highest mountain in the lower 48. And it's just a trail. You can take a trail, a walking trail, all the way to the top of Mount Whitney, and you can get a feel for what it feels like to be at altitude without stressing about technical skills or technical equipment or anything like that. So I always say, go hike Mount Whitney, see how you feel. If you like it, if that invigorates you, then you can try Kilimanjaro, where you're going to even higher altitude or go to Mount Shasta. I think Shasta is a great training ground because there's no crevasse danger on certain parts of the route and you it's a big snow field. And so you can really get a feel for what it feels like to be walking uphill in the snow with your crampons on and an ice axe. And there's two day courses you can take to help develop your skills because you should know how to use an ice axe properly. You should know how to self-arrest in case you start to slide. You should know how to help other people. <laughs> you know, if you happen to be roped to people, you should know how to self-arrest to stop the rest of your team from sliding. There's and rescue people from a crevasse if you are on a route with crevasse danger. So there are certain skills that you do need for glacier climbing. And those, you know, there are courses that you can take that are just a couple of days that will give you a good, solid background in those skills. So I think that's always a good place to start. So just out of curiosity, then, I, I know you've been a guide and there's a lot for the last, I don't know, a few decades, there's been a lot of, I would say, adventure tourism with people who are not necessarily experienced climbers going up to Mount Everest. So I was curious what you think about that, because I draw a parallel when people talk to me about, you know, humans, flying, you know, tourists flying in space, I draw a parallel there. I was just curious what your thoughts were from that. You hear that a lot, but I would say there are very, very few people who actually don't 
have, you know, much experience to go to the mountain. You're supposed to have a certain amount of experience in order to be granted a permit. So I would say, you know, 98% of the people on the mountain probably have climbed enough to have the skills to do it. I do know people where that was their first mountain, but they hired trainers, you know, they, they trained on smaller mountains first. It was their first big expedition, but they hired like fitness trainers and coaches. And they had a lot of people sort of guiding them and coaching them before they went to Everest. They didn't just, you know, show up with like, Hey, I've never done this before. I wonder how to get up. But you do, I mean, you hear those stories a lot, but I find that the most of the people on the mountain really do have a good amount of experience. And a lot of times too, when you hear when you hear about people that don't have experience, like I said, there's a few of them. And some of them, like one in particular I know has done really, really, really well because she is an incredibly strong athlete and also just has her psychological strength is beyond anyone else's that I've known. And she's just a strong athlete. And I had no doubt that she she could do it. Very few people with no skills can do it, but there is definitely a psychological component to it. But also, you you know, a lot of it, as I started to say, is rumors. So, for example, if you people that read the book Into Thin Air about the 1996 Everest disaster have this impression of Sandy Hill, who was this rich socialite who never really climbed anything before and just paid her way to get dragged up the mountain. But Sandy Hill Pittman had actually climbed six of the seven summits had gotten very close to the summit of Everest in two previous climbs and actually had much more experience than many other people on the mountain. But for some reason, I guess because she was very wealthy, people really saw her as a target because, you know, a lot of people died on the mountain that year and you want to blame people. And so you want to blame their rich socialite, I guess. But she actually did have quite a bit of experience. And I still see people, even journalists, write about her and say, oh yeah, the rich socialite who had zero climbing experience and just expected to get dragged up the mountain. I'm like, she had a lot of climbing experience actually when she went to Everest. But the rumor mill, you know, the rumor mill is going to keep going. But you do, you mentioned earlier when we started that you, you do a lot of speaking, you mentioned a book, you, you teach at West Point. So those, you're sort of, I guess, in smorgasbord career mode. And Yeah. So I really like not knowing what my future is going to look like. I love the unknown. I I know a lot of people don't because it makes them uneasy, but I like having a lot of white space in my life so that if something comes up that interests me, Mm -hmm. I can pursue it. So yeah, right now I'm doing a lot of speaking. (laughs) I'm on the faculty of the Thayer Leadership Group at West Point. I am serve on the board of the business school at the Fuqua School of Business at Duke and on the board of the University of Arizona. So um, I have plenty of stuff that keeps me busy that I like. And still, you know, I live in Colorado where I can get out to the mountains all the time. But sometimes I'll do a speaking engagement for a client that has an interesting project that they can bring me into. So I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what my life's going to look like a year from now or even six months from now. And I kind of like that. I do the same thing, except I'm working full time now, but I was doing that for a while where it's fun to just see what pops up and that gives you the freedom to go do whatever. So Alan, I have to ask you one last question, but since I'm on the board of Molson Coors, I have to ask you to tell our listeners about the fact that I believe there's a beer brewed by an all-female owned brewery named Missy Brewery in Charlotte that is named after your exploits. Uh, how did that happen? And tell us about the beer. Oh, I wish I post. Well, actually, you know, it's funny. I have, 
I actually have the menu from their <laughs> the, the food menu from there because I have a dog named Tro- I had a dog named Trooper. Not we had to say goodbye to him a year ago, but they had all these hot dogs at the bar and they named him for the night they launched the beer they named him trooper dogs after my dog trooper and they printed up menus and everything i wish i had the poster from the beer label but it was a, a brewery called bold missy brewery in charlotte and unfortunately they did not survive covid but their beer used to be sold at nfl you know mm-hmm. the charlotte yeah, the, the carolina yeah, panthers the Pan- yeah. mm-hmm. panthers games they would sell the beer at the stadium and their beer they named the beer after me and they put my face on the label of the beer and it was called conquer the route chocolate stout oh and that's awesome beers at bold missy brewery it was founded by a woman named Carol Wagner, who is still in the beer industry. Well, sorry, she was in the beer industry for a long time. And now she's still in the food and beverage industry, not outside of beer, but in food and beverage. And so she started Bold Missy Brewery and all the beers were named after women. They had a beer named after Diana Nyad, the swimmer, a beer named after Amelia Earhart, a beer named after Sally Ride. It, I think it was like Rocket Ride, IPA, Find a Way after Diane and I had find a way wheat. It was amazing. And so I went to the brewery for the launch of my beer. It was so great. And I'm so sad that they did not survive COVID, but I'm hoping that they will make a comeback at some point. But Carol Wagner just felt like this, you know, she wanted to start this brewery. Uh, It's obviously a very male dominated space, but she started this brewery and was very inspired by just a number of women and wanted to, you know, get the message about like how women inspire the world. And she wanted to get that out through her beers. And I just, I loved everything about that brewery and hoping that she'll start it up again. at some. Oh, that's an awesome story. Well, as a beer guy, <laughs> that is a really cool story. And uh, uh, we should all have a beer. We should aspire to having a beer named after us at some point in our life. Yeah, because she said, what's your favorite kind of beer? Because when she met me, she said, what's your favorite kind of beer? I love everything chocolate, anything. <laughs> so, of course, I said, chocolate stout. And then she said, great, we'll come up with a name for it. And then it po- just popped into my head. I said, how about, because we we're trying to think of something that rhymed with Everest. And then we couldn't come up with anything. And then I just thought, how about conquer the route, chocolate stout. And so that was it. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Well, Allison, this has been a really fun conversation. You have such an, a diverse array of things that you do. I mean. Climbing, teaching, investment banking, you know, all these other things. It's just remarkable to have the opportunity to talk to you. And I know those West Point cadets who are maybe going to lose finally to Navy this year. Who knows? Uh, (laughs) uh, I know they're inspired by, uh, especially the women cadets are very inspired by you. So really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. And if I could leave people with one message because this is what I think about when I'm climbing a big mountain and I start when I see, especially like I'm about five, four. (laughs) And when I see these tall guys, these six foot four, six foot six guys with these long legs, just passing me by on the mountain, just blowing past me. And I sometimes get discouraged thinking maybe I can't do this because I'm not as fast as these other people. What I think about is this, and this is what I want people to remember. You do not have to be the best fastest, strongest climber out there on the trail every day. You just have to be absolutely relentless about putting one foot in front of the other. That is how you get to the top of the mountain. You just have to be the person that will not quit. And sometimes the people that are going really, really fast every day are the people that burn out the first. Yeah. The people who win are the ones who will take one step further than the people who 
quit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. So. Good message. All right. Well, thank you again. And uh, thank you. We'll keep track of you. Can't My- wait. That was climber, author, investor, filmmaker, storyteller, and boundary crusher, Allison Levine. I'm Sandy Winnefeld. And I'm Sandra Magnus. Thanks again to Culligan Water for sponsoring this episode. A high-performance lifestyle deserves high-performance water. Learn more at Culligan.com. And join us next week for another amazing episode of The Adrenaline Zone. Find and share us on social media. We appreciate your support.